Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, John, I think we have a great show lined up for today, as usual. You know, we're going to start off talking about how to wreck your retirement. Um, not something you want to do out there, but uh, you know it does happen a lot. And so we're going to talk about, I think there's six or seven ways here. It's a great article about some of the ways that you can wreck your retirement and how to avoid those. That's a really important topic. Yeah, and then we're going to follow that up with a, a pretty um, interesting case study, if you will, of a uh, company, Steve, that's been around for over 100 years. And um, they've struggled mightily in the stock market. And it used to be a bellwether. It was a blue chip, um, still considered a blue chip, but they've had a, a string of uh, years now that um, has not been real good. So we're going to dive into the reason to diversify. And uh, it can if you don't do it, it's going to get you at some point. So um, it's, a, it's a neat case study. Yeah, I think it's a great lesson in history. So you, you want to listen to that and when we dig into that, because uh, very interesting statistics in there about the history of this company that we all know. So we won't give it away just yet. Uh, by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro with over 23 years' experience of providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro. I have an MBA in finance and been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years. We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Um, our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, go check out our website, moneymd.net. We have a, a link to all the podcasts. We have probably a couple hundred now. We've been doing this for a little while, and uh, we Absolutely. also have a lot of videos, a lot of tools. Go check out the uh, resources. We're continuing to, to build that out, and actually when we talk about the prescription a little bit later, we're going to point back to, to moneymd.net. So go check that out. Also a Facebook page as well, which we, uh, we post on frequently. Absolutely, and check us out on our website, moneymd.net, as you mentioned, but email us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net, or you can... Um, reach us off our website, and there's links to us there. Um, so we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this is uh, interesting. comes from Dimensional um, Fund Advisors, which is happens to be the mutual fund company that we use, and they used uh, data from, from Bloomberg. But, Steve, it's interesting, the last 20-plus years, the number of stocks on the U.S. Stock Exchange has decreased um, from its peak of about 7,000 and has been cut in half to about 3,400. However, that's you know if you look at the growth on the international side, um, you know there's over thirty nine thousand different stocks internationally. So people sometimes get focused on the U.S. and really looking just at the U.S. There's a, a huge amount of opportunity outside the U.S. borders. Yeah, it's shocking to me that the number has decreased by half in the last twenty years. Um, and you have to ask the question of why. You know, I mean, what what's caused that decrease? And I think it's and then while it's also increased abroad. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe the reason is regulations. You know, maybe um, the U.S. has been, you know, we went through the dot-com era and we went through the failure of uh, Enron and some of those companies. And, and then, you know, more recently, the uh, Great uh, uh, Recession. And so I think a lot of different um, regulations have come on board mm -hmm. and have really— uh, kind of choked small companies from going public. 
But uh, at the same time, that's probably been the opposite trend internationally. But it, to me, it really highlights why you want to invest internationally. Yeah, there's 10 times the number of stocks internationally that there are U.S. So, yeah, don't um, we, we're big believers in uh, investing and being diversified um, outside the U.S. as well. So you got to make sure it's right for you and your portfolio. But uh, really interesting fact of the week. It really is. It really is. So, okay. And that leads us up here to our first topic, and that is how to wreck your 401k. Not something you want to do. Not a very so, positive uh, topic here, It's Steve. not Come a positive on. title, but, you know, we're going to spin this positive. We're going to talk about how to avoid those things and how to really make your 401k thrive. Um, but this is an interesting article out of Market Watch. Uh, Mitch uh, Touchman uh, wrote this here very recently that we're basing this on. But, you know, the 401k, John, was born about 40 years ago. It's been around a long time. Um, it was the Revenue Act of 1978 which included provisions that allowed employees to avoid tax on a portion of their deferred compensation. And then there was a benefits consultant named Ted Benna who created the first plan, and then he asked the IRS to issue a private letter ruling to uh, kind of codify it, if you will, and to approve it under law. And then after some IRS changes shortly after, I mean, plans just caught on like wildfire, and that led to widespread acceptance and use as the retirement vehicle of choice by large corporations. Since then, though, 401k plans have now, I mean, they've been a boon to millions of Americans who have access to them. There's over 55 million participants in 401k plans with $5.3 trillion held in plans nationwide at the end of last year, um, according to industry data here recently. So, I mean, simply put, 401k plans work. I mean, it's incredible the the amount of money that's in 401k plans. Yeah, I would say what Ted did was a pretty good pretty good uh, work he did from a consultant standpoint. So that was pretty good consulting. <laughs> he did it actually for his own company, though, first. He was, he was kind of being self-serving and, I yeah. guess, trying it out. And he figured, hey, man, if I can make this work... I can sell this to large corporations, and that's what he did. Yeah, that's uh, very, very wise because it has been very successful. And, you know, sometimes workplace retirement plans, they get some bad press. Sometimes they're loaded with high fees, and um, sometimes they don't have good choices. But in addition to providing income tax breaks, the plans are designed to really fend off your worst impulses for spending in your retirement. For instance, I mean, you'll pay a penalty plus taxes for withdrawing money too early. So people tend to leave that money alone and they let it grow and compound over years. And that really does work. And so that's the good news. The bad news is, you know, otherwise diligent savers, they can leave their money on the table uh, with the 401k. Sometimes they don't even realize they're leaving it uh, on the table. And that's true even for those contributing the maximum amount. So if you care about maximizing your retirement, be careful how you're going to treat your plan and avoid making some of these, um, you know, unforced and, and unknown 401k errors. We're going to dive into that right now. Yeah, that's right. That leads us up to mistake number one, and that is not saving in a 401k. Of course, that that is the biggest mistake. That's a way sure. to wreck it. Yep, that would certainly wreck it if you don't don't participate. Um, but yeah, I mean, it seems fundamental. But you know, there's a shocking number of people that simply ignore the opportunity to save in a retirement plan at work. Up to 60 percent of eligible workers according to one study, don't use their 401k plan, which is hard to conceive of. You know, I mean, to overcome that human inertia, though, I mean, companies have started to employ, uh, to enroll uh, employees automatically. So there's automatic enrollment in a lot of plans now. And, you know, many people, though, also don't have access to a, a retirement plan at work. 
a, a Pew Charitable Trust study found that 35% of workers aged 22 and older had no 401k plan to access at work, while about 80% of baby boomers, though, do join a plan if one is offered, only 52%, only about half of millennials will choose to participate. Hmm. So that's another problem is just the choice to participate. Older folks, you know, recognize, I think the older you get, the closer to retirement, you recognize the benefit of having money accumulating in your plan. But even those who do have access to their plans at work um, and do save, they can leave a lot of money on the table by not taking advantage of all the options and the power of compounding investments over a working career. And that leads us up to our next mistake. Yeah, and that's not investing. I mean, some even with the automatic enrollment, which is, I think, a good enhancement, a lot of those people are just keeping it in cash. 80 to 90% don't actually invest it. They're just putting it into cash. Cash is subject to inflation, and um, you know it steadily loses value over time. So, you know, stocks and bonds at least give you the opportunity to grow above inflation. Uh, they protect your purchasing power, and um, you know companies are responding by creating default target date portfolios, and sometimes they're putting you in a very conservative target date portfolio, and that's certainly better than cash. But these target date products. They can be too conservative as well. We we look at the target date, you know, options out there, and it's better than cash. But there are better allocations out there. Sometimes they're more conservative than what you knew need, and they they don't have a lot of small stock presence and so forth. So um, better than cash, but not the best way to invest. Yeah, I think target date funds are a good starting place for for younger employees, but it's not a great place to leave your money long term because I think they tend to be a little too conservative. You know, they're kind of erring on the conservative side to maybe limit their liability. So uh, usually you can get a better allocation. You know, the next mistake, though, is not getting the free money. You know, John, we talked about the free money. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, many companies, they incentivize the savings by offering a match, of course, um, for contributions up to a specific percentage of your salary each year. You know, saving less than that match is turning away the free money. I mean, this is part of your salary. This is part of your compensation. So for that reason, default accounts often start out saving at kind of at the matching level. Um, a typical match might be 50 cents on the dollar for your, up to 6% of your pay. That's what a lot of large corporations do. So if you make $50,000 a year, um, that first $3,000 that you put in your 401k plan will be matched with $1,500 for, from your employer. So that's $1,500 of free money. Um, you can't give that up. That is part of your pay. Some employers do less, though. They match maybe half of that, up to 3% of your salary, maybe. Um, So while there can be a lot of corporate reasons for the difference, it's worth asking why. You know, you could gently probe your employer and and ask them, hey, you know, um, do they plan to increase the match? Is this this something that's going to change over time? Um, But regardless, you should strive to save up to the IRS maximum limits. If you can, if you could afford that, it's a lot of money, but it, for this year, it's $18,500 if you're under 50, and it's 24500 if you're over 50. So there's a lot of money you can get in there, but getting your company's full match is the minimum you should do. Um, and that includes, you know, uh, well, and the, but then also we recommend that you save up to 15% of your salary in retirement plans overall. 
So including the plans that you have outside, like a Roth IRA um, and the company match, you want to get up to 15% of your salary over the long term. We've never seen anybody that came up short. At least I haven't. Yeah, um, I agree. That saved 15% of their salary over a long, long period of time when it came to retirement. Yeah, you do that for a couple of decades and it really adds up the, and the power of compounding. That's right. So yeah. that's what you want to go for. <clears throat> yeah, that's good. Number four here, the mistake number four is missing out on company matches because you front loaded your your contributions. And we do see um, this mistake made. Aggressive savers will uh, try to front end load and contribute that 18.5 in the first three months. Um, the problem with that is, is you're going to miss out on some of that match. You're not going to be able to um, get the the match because that um, they're only matching maybe three percent that you're putting in. So that additional amount that you're up, you know, front end loading, you're not going to get matched on. So at the end of the day, um, you know, when you get later in the year or you've already maxed out, you're not getting the full match. So be careful if you're front end loading your contributions. Yeah, that's something to be careful for. Um, some employers, they will true up the contributions to make sure you get the full amount at the end of the year, or they'll make annual matches to even it out for the year. But policies, they vary from company to company. Uh, a recent study, a Dillette study, found that <clears throat> nearly 9 in 10 companies match per pay period, and just 45% do any kind of true up at the end of the year. So there's a good 50% chance, you know, or 55% chance, I guess, that you that they won't true it up at the end of the year. So you don't want to front-end load it too much um, to not get your match throughout the entire year for all the pay periods. So that's a good one, one that most people don't think of. Next one here, though, is paying high fees. Um, yeah, a lot of small companies, they'll kind of default to whatever plan's available for them, whatever is the easiest, <clears throat> whatever plan may be matches that meets their needs and, and kind of reduces the front end paperwork and the admin expenses that the firm has to bear to manage the plan in house. Um, yet those easy solutions like group variable annuities, they can be loaded with higher than average fees that are paid by the employees. Um, that doesn't mean that you, you can't av advocate for yourself. So once you're in the plan, you know, choose low cost index funds in the plan um, most funds do offer those. A bright scope study found that 98% of 401k plans offer some type of index funds inside their plan. <clears throat> Just 31% though of the total assets in plans are in those low cost index funds versus the more higher cost mutual funds in the plan. So look for the index funds in there. And, um, you know, while digging into the fees in your plan can be a little bit complicated, it can vary according to your investment choices, so it's worth doing it. Look at the, what the fees are in your plan. You can ask your human resource department maybe for access to those numbers. Um, you certainly should be able to get it online, and almost everybody has online access now to their retirement plans. So look for that readable breakdown of what the fund costs are for each fund in your plan. And uh, you can compare your, your plan against others by simply searching online for it. So that's one to look out for, higher fees. Yeah, and mistake number six, Steve, we've talked about this time and time again, is uh, we see people trying to time the market. And um, we also see people that tend to ignore sometimes your 401k balance for a long time. Then they open up their statement and um, they turn out they're 401k millionaires because that's they've left it alone. That's the power of time and compounding. And it happens. I, I don't know about you. I'm sure you're kind of like me. You can look at someone coming in and look at their 401k statement and 
generally tell if they've tried to time it by the balance. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's Someone right. will come in with 200000 and another person will come in next week that's worked the same amount of time with the same salary, and it's a million or 800 Plus, you'll see they have a kind of a screwy allocation in the plan. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll have like half their money in fixed income just in the fixed account, or they'll have something that you wouldn't choose if you were just allocating it and leaving it alone. Um, they'll be loaded up on some health care fund. Saw that here just, just yesterday. So it's, yeah, you can see people that, that try to do some timing. Yeah, and you got to be careful. So, you know, money prudently invested, you know, it doubles, and then it can double again, and then it can double again. It's kind of like folding a single sheet of paper until it's too fat to fold any, even more. And by the way, you start folding paper like that, and you, about the seventh fold, it's kind of hard to do that. So that's it. It does grow quickly over time, and it does take, obviously, decades to do that. But if you leave it alone, prudently invested, Historically, that's been a good formula. That's right. And you want to rebalance because the problem is that sometimes the method that got you the big balance in the first place um, can lead to higher risk as the assets get concentrated over time without rebalancing. So, you know, soon a diversified portfolio can become very concentrated if you leave it alone for just years and you don't rebalance it. Um, the market changes, of course, and, you know, your your fat 401k can start to look like a 201k <laughs> when you go through a recession or a bear market. Um, and also, it's easy to get greedy and, and want to start chasing the funds that did the best. So stick with what got you there um, and, and what will get you there long term, and that is compounding. That'll take care of the rest. Just diversify prudently. If you if you prudently diversify and if you get a, a say a seven point two percent return year by year, one dollar in ten years should turn into two dollars, you know, or a hundred thousand would turn into two hundred thousand. So, and then you know, two 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 hundred thousand dollars ten years later should be four hundred thousand dollars, and that's without adding any money to it. That's just the comp the power of compounding interest. So leave it alone and let it let it compound over time. Don't try to chase the the hot funds or time the market. And the last one here is um, having orphaned accounts. You know, this is a big problem, John. I mean, most Americans these days, they, they just spend a few years in any one firm. Um, we hold 10 jobs on average by age 40 and 12 to 15 jobs in a lifetime, according to recent government data. So, you know, many of those jobs, though, I mean, they, they don't last, uh, you know, long enough to start a 401k. And, but if they do, then you leave it behind. So too often these orphaned accounts, they kind of get frittered away with higher fees. They're left in fixed accounts with no management. Um, so having multiple 401ks, that's a risky way, uh, <clears throat> to, to leave your retirement money invested. You know, they're, they're likely to be invested in various different ways, not kind of marching to the same drumbeat. Um, so you have to be, uh, you want to be prudently diversified. You want to have all your 401ks kind of marching to the same drumbeat. So roll those over, old balances over into an IRA. Get them kind of all together in one account where you can manage it, where you can watch it. And uh, then get it prudently diversified. Um, don't leave those orphaned accounts out there. You know, small problems such as missing your company match and the high fund fees, they can add up to big dollars over a decade. The key is take control of your financial future by paying attention to how your money is managed, um, no matter what your stage is in your career. Your future and your retirement will thank you 
down the road. So that's uh, great advice. That did turn out positive. I like it. It did. See, there I spun that positive. <laughs> and uh, speaking of positive, that leads us up here to our question of the week. And yeah, this question came from a client <clears throat> recently, and um, they just kind of decided to buy a home. They had quite a bit of money in a brokerage account. And Talked about it, and um, the question was: Is you know, should I take the money out of the stock market now, um, or wait until I need it? So that we were talking about months here, and the markets had done well, and actually it was back in January, and um, so we sold it, you know, at a good time, and obviously we good. didn't know what the markets were going to do. But when you need something in the next couple of months, generally putting it in cash, um, and and it's there for you, um, you don't risk the markets dropping and having to change your plan. So yeah, a couple of months out, we would say take it out of the market. Yeah, generally we would, unless the market's way down maybe, but uh, you yeah. certainly want to take a hard look at that. If the market's not down significantly, you probably want to take it out if you're planning to <clears throat> use the money and you know you know it's, it's, it's money that's earmarked already. So, all right, and that leads us up here to our final topic, and that is um, a lesson in diversification. Yeah, this comes from The Motley Fool. Um, it's about uh, GE. General Electric, and um, mm. one of a, a fact that most people probably don't know, some people do, but I used to work for GE. And, oh, did you? Um, yeah, I worked for them for four and a half, almost five years, and great experience. And I will say that, um, you know, their their performance really started going down in 2000, which is when I left. I don't know if that's a coincidence it or not. It could be. They just needed you there, John. That's right. So, um, but uh, in, interesting, uh, GE has been an industrial icon, Steve. It's it's it not done well recently, and we'll go through some of the facts here. But, you know, when the stock market gives you lemons, you got to make lemonade. But here are five things that uh, we're going to look at here, some lessons that we want to look at. But I do want to kind of share with you, GE has um, – it was co-founded by Thomas Edison. You've heard of him wow, before? Wow, wow, that's an old company. Yes, uh, been around since 1892, and for <laughs> decades it has been one of the biggest, most diversified companies in the world. It's paid a steady, steady dividend, and – you know, we've all used company products and services, light bulbs and so forth, pretty much on a daily basis. But so far this century, the reality of GE is it's really been a horrible investment. After reaching almost $60 per share in 2000, uh, it now trades for $14. Wow. So um, there are five lessons that you got to take away from this because I've talked to people. I used to work in the company, and GE mm-hmm. was a was one of the best companies in the world, and they have really, really struggled. So lesson number one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had clients that had big holdings in GE, so I kind of know the history, you know, in 2000, whenever it started down. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of lessons to learn here. I mean, even blue chip, the first lesson, though, is even blue chip stocks do get the blues. Anything can happen to a one company. You know, back in the 1920s, according to Wall Street lore, you know, a Dow Jones employee named Oliver uh, Jingold was standing next to the stock ticker machine in a brokerage firm that eventually became uh, Merrill Lynch. And he saw a few stocks, you know, trading more than $200 a share. And they moved higher. So he reportedly turned to the person standing next to him and said, you know, I got to get back to my office to write about these blue chip stocks. So, yeah, I mean, that's when kind of the blue chips were born back then. Um, And, you know, I mean, the term blue chip was originally applied to stocks with high prices because blue chips are worth more than the red and white chips, you know, um, from gambling. So it was kind of the expensive 
chips is what they were known as. Yeah, I'm not a gambler, but that that makes sense. I mean, the blue chips are, are um, worth more value, and so that's how they came, you know, to to be known as. And they were reliable, steady stocks. And in fact, according to to the uh, dictionary, the current definition of a blue chip is a stock issue of high investment quality that usually pertains to a sub- substantial. A uh, well-established company and enjoys public confidence in its worth and stability. So, where can you find such stocks? You look in the index. Um, blue chip uh, is often the description of the Dow Jones, and in fact, GE was the among the twelve original members of the Dow, which was created in 1896, and it's the only um, member, original member, that's still around. So yeah. it has been a around a long time. Time. So, despite the blue chip pedigree, GE. Um, really hasn't been a model of stability or reliability over the last 18 years. So, um, there, Steve, there really is no stock that is surefire moneymaker. I mean, there isn't. People are pointing towards Amazon now, and, you know, they're, they're great and they're dominant, but, um, you know, you just don't know. You don't. I mean, you know, Coca-Cola used to be the darling stock, too, and, and you know, we have family that owned that stock for years and years, and uh, I remember when it topped out, at, uh, I don't know, like $86 a share back in 97, 98 time frame. And it's never seen that price since, you know. So it has been, a, like GE, it has gone decades now without seeing big gains and getting back to its, you know, its, uh, um, you know, very high price that it was at back in those days. Lesson number two here is holding for the long term, you know, is no guarantee for success. It was 1996 when GE first exceeded $14 a share on a split-adjusted basis. And here we are 22 years later, John, and the stock is still around $14 a share. So that's two decades with no growth. Ouch. Um, that's a long time that'll, to just get a dividend. That'll change the retirement plan. That certainly will. And, you know, so our standard advice is to keep money that you need in the next couple of years out of the stock market of course, because you don't know how long it takes for a stock to recover from a bear market. But an individual stock is very, very different. You know, history of GE, as it illustrates, even time frame of well more than two decades is not a guarantee that you're going to make money in a stock. So you want to avoid holding individual stocks for any long period of time. Yeah, and lesson number three here, Steve, is um, past dividends, um, you know, don't mean anything about future results. Um, we look at GE and, and um, you know, I know we've had these conversations with folks and, and they view the P&Gs and the GEs and the AT&Ts as dividends that will never, you know, be cut and stop. Well, you know, in 2008, a lot of companies cut their dividends and GE yep. recently has slashed their dividend. I read something this morning that they're looking to um, to slash it again. So people that counted on that income, it's gone or it's, yep. being, it's being changed and it may be changed forever. So dividends are not a guarantee, even with um, some of the largest companies that have been around 100 plus years. So be careful with dividends. Lesson number four here is a diversified company is not a substitute for a diversified portfolio. Um, you know, GE is in about 130 different uh, countries, and they have a lot of different sectors, appliances, electronics, aviation, healthcare, um, sciences, entertainment. It's, it's very diversified, but you can see what happens when one company doesn't perform well. It's been 22 years and it's made zero money. So be very, very careful about looking at a diversified company as a substitute. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, even with its multiple business lines and multiple con- countries, it didn't prevent the stock from being a dud of investment over the past couple of decades. 
And so unfortunately, it's a painful lesson for many GE employees. You know, in a recent Wall Street Journal article, um, they thought that they were a fine position. They pointed this out in this article. Um, they were getting a pension from GE, you know, with a heaping helping of the company's stock. Uh, but because they, you know, bought it at a discount in the, in the stock purchase program. But unfortunately, you know, they profiled one person in 19, uh, 2016 worth 300,000 of company stock, but they had to go back and it was worth half just uh, a couple of years later. They had mm-hmm. to go back and, uh, you know, having to go back to work. Yeah. So it was not a pretty picture. The bottom line is if you own an individual stock, which we don't necessarily recommend, we, we don't do that. Um, don't have more than five to 10%. Dave Ramsey talks about that number as well. Uh, regardless of the size and the reach of the company, it's very, very dangerous and uh, can really hurt your future. Lesson number five, um, you know, diversify your own plans. Um, if you're working for a company, you need to make sure you have the right skill sets because uh, companies change. I mean, you look at Amazon changing uh, industries out there with what they're doing. So make sure that your skills are up to date and you're, um, you know, you're, you're keeping uh, your, your knowledge of different industries up to date as well because things can change very, very quickly. Absolutely. Well, it's a great, great article, great reflection back on what can happen to even blue chip companies. So um, that uh, will lead us up here to our prescription of the week. Yeah, Steve, this prescription is um, about college graduates, and it's really um, talking to high school uh, students and parents out there. There was a a recent um, table that came out that we came across, Federal Reserve Bank of New York. We've actually put this on our website moneymd.net. Go check it out. It has a listing of majors, the unemployment rate associated with those majors, the underemployment rate, which means you have a degree, but you can't find a job. In your degree. In your degree, which is significant. It has the the median wage when you first start and uh, a median wage mid-career. And it also shares the number of people that have graduate students. So let me just give you an example. Uh, Social services, um, you make about 30,000 coming out. Almost half of those folks have a graduate degree. So if you wow. want to compete in that field, yep. you know, you're going to have a low salary coming out. And we need folks in these fields. There's sure. no doubt. Nothing right? wrong with the field, but you just got to be realistic about what you're getting into. That's right. And then the debt, if you come out with 30000 from undergrad and you have to go to grad school and you get another 50000 it's going to be hard to pay $80,000 worth of debt with a $30,000 salary or a 40000 It's going to be very, very tight. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think, remarkable data. And I haven't never seen this before where it shows the underemployment rate for a degree, you know, and you can look at some of them that are terrific. And that was always my impression that nursing was a fantastic Mm -hmm. degree. Only 11 percent are underemployed. And that means that 90, almost 90 percent are working in as a nurse somewhere. Very low unemployment. They start at $50,000. What a great Good degree. What a great career to go into in terms of getting a job and then keeping the job in your field. But at the same time, as you mentioned, you know, there there are other careers out there like criminal justice where 75 percent underemployment rate. So that means that three quarters of people that get criminal justice degrees don't find a job in their field or they don't stay in their field for some reason. So you just need to look at this type data. This is very eye-opening information. I think it's very useful. Yeah, check out our website, moneymd.net. It's in the resources tab, uh, along with some other things that you may be interested in. But it's a, it is a great data set. I actually sent it to two educators yesterday, and, and maybe they already had it. But uh, it really is good information. 
Yeah, it really is. <clears throat> All right. Well, this has been this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVistor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.